we're in this extended period during this pandemic where we're worshiping over Zoom, we're doing things sort of the best that we can, and most of us are doing okay. Even within our church, we're hearing of the extremes. There are some people actually that sheltering in place, they love it. Uh, we have people that just love to be home, reading, don't want to have to be out and about. There are some people that are doing okay, although it has problems. On the other end of the spectrum, we've had a number of people um, at our church who have suffered greatly over the last few months, some directly because of COVID, but some because of the various restrictions or the, the new way of life. Most people, as far as I can tell, though, are doing okay. <laughs> we're making the most of it. And, and, and yet, I suspect most of us, whether we're doing miserably or even if we're doing relatively well, are not thriving. Uh, there's, there's a certain sense of dissatisfaction. And, and we might use a word that sounds like a mild word, like boredom. But actually, boredom which on its own isn't a problem. So you don't have much to do, that could be okay. But boredom at a deep existential level uh, can be quite troubling when you realize that there's this, this dissatisfaction, these cravings that are never fulfilled. And as a Manhattan church, where the city is filled with so many wonderful things that are good in their own and yet we haven't been able to do them. So uh, the arts, when it comes to performing arts in terms of you know, theaters, closed, uh, museums, places of culture, stimulating thought, beauty, closed, uh, restaurants, where there's now a, a reopening by demand um, outside, but it's, our rhythms haven't been the same. And on the one hand, all of these things are good, and, and when our lives are rightly ordered, then whenever there's something good, it's a, it's a source of delight, a source of joy, a source of goodness. But things get disordered. And one of the things that we're perhaps discovering, at least in a city like New York, is that the goodness of the theaters and the museums and the food and whatever other activities we've had hasn't necessarily been touching on making our deeply satisfied souls <laughs> uh, giving us the occasions to, to enjoy ourselves, but but in some ways we've been distracting ourselves with a busyness that a number of these things have served really to mask the dissatisfaction that has consistently been there, but we've just been able to distract ourselves from. And so now for most of us spending most of our time at home, that's not everyone, some people are essential workers. And, um, but so, so what are we doing now? And, and, and there's a number of ways that we're still able to manage our dissatisfaction, not satisfying it, but managing it. Uh, one, Netflix, social media, which both, you know, those are good when in its proper order. But most of us know that should not consume all of our time or energy. We should not devote those, ourselves to those things. And yet, in the dissatisfaction, in the antsiness, in the boredom, there's this, this pull that even in our minds, if we say this is, I'm going to waste a half hour at the end of it, I won't feel good about having done it. And yet I feel like I need to do something. So I'm drawn to that. So, so there's an example without these other things to distract us that afterwards we feel good about not realizing that in some ways, it's not that we did something good, but that we distracted ourselves. Uh, the current, the, the Netflix option, the social media option, we know should not be central in our lives, should be a part of our lives. But but in our boredom, 
maybe we're feeling the pull and that's just showing our dissatisfaction. What's typical for manual people and a lot of others, um, what do we devote our time and energy to? Well, a lot of people devote their time to work, whether that's something you're paid for employment or whether it's just your skill, what you devote your time and energy to. Now, work is very good. And work should take a large amount of our time. But is your life rightly ordered? In which case is work something you're doing out of a meaningful life? Or are you pouring yourself into your work because it's a more justifiable distraction from a fundamental dissatisfaction? a boredom, an emptiness. You know, we know that, that Twitter and Facebook and Instagram is, is, is not gonna satisfy us if we spend five hours a day doing it. But it's only when you interview people in their 70s and 80s and, and the refrain is, I never wish that I had spent more time in the office, that we realize that even though work has greater value and impact, it's not meant to be the fullness of our identity, it's not meant to be our devotion. And so we're perhaps seeing how uh, we're shopping more online, doing these various things to manage what is a dissatisfaction in us. And so I'm, I'm going to talk about dissatisfaction today because dissatisfaction is part of the context of the story we're looking at. So we're in a sermon series uh, called Redemptive Stories. It's just a short series where we're looking at people in the Bible who meet Jesus or who encounter Christianity and the trajectory of their lives are changed. And there's redemption in their lives, but, but their story changes as they connect to a bigger story, God's story. And that's something for us to be working on this year. What is the story of our lives? And today we're going to consider, are we satisfied? Uh, is there something satisfying for us? Verse 13, Jesus, in talking to the Samaritan woman, the person we're considering today, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That seems to be part of what he's getting at in moving this woman through dialogue to a deeper place to really get into her life. He's talking about uh, the, the, the things that are, are, are normally around us that dissatisfy us. And so that's part of this uh, context of this story. And I'm going to highlight that as a way to move into it. And so I'm going to talk about two things today. One is understanding what truly satisfies. That's part of what, what this dialogue with Jesus and the Samaritan woman is about. But secondly, about receiving what truly satisfies one of the reasons this is a redemptive story is it doesn't just change her life, but it changes her community. And we find that it's not simply her who receives grace, but actually uh, the Samaritan village where she lives. So I'm going to begin with understanding what truly satisfies. There's a, a Bob Marley song called Exodus. Maybe the title of the song signals some of the theological themes. <laughs> But there's a, a refrain in it, a question that comes up a couple of times. Are you satisfied with the life you're living? See, if you're going to be brought out, if you're going to be changed, if you're going to grow into depth, often change comes from dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is not good, but an awareness of being dissatisfied in a life that we shouldn't be satisfied with can be good. Are you satisfied? Um, the the conversation with Jesus and the Samaritan woman has behind the scenes this theme of dissatisfaction. And they're talking about water. That's where they begin. And just like today, you can think about soda. You're thirsty, you want soda, but the sugar actually doesn't satisfy your thirst. Or even the, the role that alcohol or coffee because of the diuretic component. Uh, maybe they, they quench your thirst, but actually in terms of, of how much liquid you're taking in, uh, it's not a full, a full gain. 
uh, Jesus begins by talking about water. But what's interesting is before Jesus meets this woman, we, we have this sense that uh, Jesus himself is tired. Uh, and that's verse 6. He's there outside of Jacob's well in Samaria. And it says, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, uh, John, of all the gospel writers, presents Jesus with the most clarity of the divine Son of God. He was God. He was with God. And yet, uh, what we have trouble holding together is that he was divine. He was no ordinary person. And yet, in some ways, he was more ordinary than we assume. Jesus was tired. So we read about him going around and preaching and doing these wonderful things, and we forget that um, Jesus experienced tiredness and exhaustion. So his, his own weariness is part of this. And then it talks about the time of day, which the way they, they count time it being the hour of day is not how we think of time. This is midday when it's really hot, which is a little bit unusual. Why is the Samaritan one, woman coming then when typically when you read in the Bible, uh, people come in the cool of the morning to get their water for the day. They come with others. There's already a signal that that maybe she doesn't fit in, maybe she's a little bit isolated within her own community. Why is she coming in the middle of the day, but it's really hot? And so their conversation is about water to begin. Jesus asks for a drink. And so what begins with a context of a weary man talking to a woman on a really hot day, and, and the, the dissatisfying social realities are there, where first of all, she's wondering, why is a Jew, what's he even doing here? Why is he talking to me? So there's this dissatisfying social reality of divided humanity. Uh, his own disciples, why is, why is Jesus a man talking to a woman? These things that get at somehow the way we live in this world, that the world is less than it should be. So all of that's in this context. But as the dialogue proceeds on two levels, where Jesus is talking about something deep and profound and the woman is not understanding it, he's talking about water and he talks about living water. Now, for us, that translation, living water, it's right away, you, you read the word in the Bible and you think, okay, this must be something deep and profound. But, but imagine it was translated running water. When he speaks to her about living water, she probably would have taken that as a stream or moving water. In other words, he's not wanting something stale and, and dangerous, but he, he's wanting some good water. So she stays on that level, but clearly Jesus is talking about something more profound. He's talking about a spiritual reality, something that will uniquely satisfy our souls, but she doesn't understand that yet. And in order to bring her to the point of understanding, he's talking about what satisfies and doesn't satisfy, and the water that she has that, that, that satisfies temporarily, but the water that he's talking about that really satisfies. She's not there yet, and then in verses 17 and 18, he gets personal, and he talks about her and that's where we find that her story was uh, a story that likely was a very dissatisfying life. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. He says, go and get your husband. Uh, bring him. Uh, and she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So this theme of understanding, the idea of truth, this is a real genuine engagement. He says something here that gets to the truth of her life. But what's remarkable is she's not put off by it. We, we don't get from the way this narrative is recorded that she's embarrassed, humiliated, put on the offensive. 
And that's what's remarkable about Jesus. Jesus who comes and says, I am the truth, is able to speak the truth, to be the truth in a way that engages people who may otherwise avoid the truth socially, making excuses, hiding things, or even with ourselves, the fictions we tell ourselves to justify things. An encounter with Jesus is an encounter with the truth, but it's redemptive because here when he speaks with her, she's not humiliated and shamed, but she winds up after this interaction excited, feeling like she has come close not only to the truth, but to something that actually has potential for her. But her own life, all we really know about her is in this narrative. And the one thing we can conclude is her life was dissatisfying. And we don't know why. We don't know what happened to these five husbands. And the assumption most commentators read in that there's a moral component because you're dealing with Jews and Gentiles where the Jews assumed the immorality of Samaritans as a community. But also the, the fact that she's currently involved with a man that's not her husband. That seems questionable for ancient cultures, Samaritan, Jewish, or otherwise which makes you wonder, well, what happened with these five husbands? It's possible that all five of them or some of them died. So there's no moral issue. It's also possible that she's been in this cycle. And 21st century people could, could look critically at first century patriarchal society and say a woman's identity should not have been as a wife, as, uh, as a mother, as any of these things. And the, this passage is not presenting uh, a traditionalist view. It's presenting Jesus engaging somebody where they were at. And whatever the case is, whatever her life was, even in her context, this would have been dissatisfying, but certainly a modern romantic context. Who, who would want their story to include disappointment after disappointment, no matter how it came, whether it was, there's something about me that as soon as people get to know me, they don't want to stay with me, or something utterly confusing. <laughs> Why is it that people that I get involved with die. I think of, I was thinking about Elizabeth Elliot this week, uh, sort of a famous Christian figure, writer in the 20th century, and she was famous for um, her first um, becoming known as because she was married to a man named Jim Elliot, this missionary who uh, was killed trying to love a community. And um, they were married a short time, a, a short number of years, but she stayed in the community who killed her husband and they became Christian. And within a few years, she married somebody else, a, a theology professor, and he died after a few years. <laughs> and then she was gonna get remarried. And if I was that third husband, I would say, I'm noticing a serious year, um, what are my chances? And that's why you can't project out from only two data points. He outlived her, he did fine. Uh, but there's an example of somebody who would have gone through that dissatisfaction and probably questions, Lord, what, why? Here we are trying to be faithful. Um, why is this happening? And so somebody that we uphold as a, as a moral example who writes these books about singleness and satisfaction, she was dissatisfied. We don't know really if the Samaritan woman was explicitly immoral or maybe she was unlucky, but whatever we know is her life would have been very dissatisfying. This cycle of maybe this next one will be my hope and future and then whatever it was, it didn't work. And so she likely would have been a person with a lot of questions. And if she was unlucky, they would have been the questions we ask, you know, the world isn't fair. Why is this happening? Most of us, whether, whether we're simply unlucky or if there is something about uh, people leaving her, 
the kinds of questions that come up in our minds, what's wrong with me? Um, wanting answers, the, the experience of being dissatisfied leaves us wanting answers. And in the context of the dissatisfying story, that seems to be part of the engagement of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, because she's wrong in certain things. In, in verse 10, um, she, as a Samaritan woman, she's talking about worship. She's talking about um, her descendant from Jacob, uh, Israel and Samaria. They, they viewed themselves as ancestors of David who worshiped God. But verse 10, he says, if you knew, um, Jesus is coming with an encounter in the truth. You actually hear something you don't know. Verse 22, he explicitly says, you worship what you do not know. He's not here to humiliate and shame her. But here's somebody that would have a life likely filled with questions. And Jesus is coming and he's telling her things, uh, but, but th those are theoretical. It's when he actually tells her that he knows her. He just met her, and he speaks something truthfully about her existence. Where we would have thought, if this is an area of dissatisfaction, she's probably angry, humiliated. But if she's somebody looking for answers, if she's somebody alienated in her own community, where people... They know enough about her that they don't want anything else to do with her. An encounter with somebody who's truthful, who's gracious, and who knows her, for her, that seemed to be what caused her to marvel. When she, she goes back to her village, what she says is, I've met somebody who told me everything I ever did. In her life story, that was important. And look, we're all wired different. Some of you just want to know that there's hope. Some of you want to know that you'll be forgiven. Some of you want to know that death is not the end. We're all wired differently, which is why we're looking at different stories. But, but some of you really grapple with, with not understanding. What, why are things happening? This world doesn't make sense. How, how can I know? And, and I don't know really where this Samaritan's woman, woman's life was fully at. But in their conversation, the second Jesus tells her things that he knows that seems to bring her to life rather than causing her to shrink back. And part of that would have been her theology, her redemptive story. So the Samaritans as a community had the five books of Moses, but they didn't believe in the, the writings and the prophets that talk about the kings. And so you read Jesus in Israel. What is their expectation of the Messiah? We're waiting for the king, the son of David, who will come and rule. Well, the Samaritans were waiting for a prophet like the one that Moses had said after me, God will raise up prophets who will make things known, who will speak the truth. And so in verse 21, 25, after she says to Jesus in verse 19, I see that you are a prophet. Verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so there's something for some of us that, that we think that's what will satisfy us. That's why many people go to therapy. It's not that I want the tools to face today. I'm trying to make sense of my past because if I understand, if I could remember, if I could pull these things together, then I feel like I'll be okay. For some of us, our dissatisfaction comes from this ongoing sense of, ah, I'm in this cycle where things aren't working. And whatever the case is, her hope, her hope when the Messiah comes, what is the hope of the Savior? Well, one component of her hope is when he comes, he will tell us, all things. And now she meets Jesus who tells her all sorts of things about her. 
And for her, that changes her trajectory. He has not yet talked about the nature of salvation explicitly. He's been talking about it in a way that if she remembers the story, he's made the way of God, the way of grace known. Um, and yet there it is. It's a redemptive story because this struggling, strange woman who's had a very hard life meets Jesus, who speaks the truth, who claims to be the truth, who tells her the truth and knows her, but offers her things. And I'm going to highlight three things that in the midst of this interaction, Jesus, who draws near to the truth of her and her life, but doesn't cast her off, but invites her in, winds up uniquely engaging her. One thing is he's there to give her something. He begins with a question, what can you give me? <laughs> can you give me a drink? But the reality is he is there to give her something. Verse 14, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of living water or a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So when he's talking about water, he, he's not just talking about what's in Jacob's well there, but he's talking about something that will, will, will bring us to life. He's talking about this, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that will pour the spirit sent by the Father into us, and it will begin a new kind of well. It will satisfy us, and then we'll start the new trajectory where the person who receives the Spirit and walks and grows in the Spirit has eternal life growing in them. He's there to give that to her. She doesn't understand the truth. Her worship is wrong. There's all sorts of problems. But he knows her, and he comes to give her something that will satisfy eternal life itself, the Spirit. He also pursues her. Here's just a second thing that Jesus does that we see. Verse 23, they're talking about worship. And that's what he comes to restore. You, you don't, you're worshiping what you don't know. And therefore, you're, you're on this cycle of delighting and devoting yourselves in ways that doesn't satisfy. But I'm coming to show you what will satisfy. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Last week, we looked at Jesus going to Zacchaeus, where Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now Jesus comes to seek somebody who will worship in spirit and truth. He comes to the Samaritan community that says, well, we worship on this mountain. We're the descendants of Jacob. And Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews, but it's not only for the Jews. I am coming here to seek after you. And that's part of this story. The one who knows her doesn't send her off humiliated and ashamed, but knows who, tr who she truly is because he has sought to bring her and show her who he truly is. And so this is a redemptive story. Here's the third thing. He reveals himself. What does he do in, in wanting to give her? Uh, he talks about the spirit that the Father will send, that he will send, that will bring life, that will lead to worship. But he talks about the truth as well, which is he himself. Later in John, he will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so they're having this conversation. Do you understand? And Jesus is bringing her to a deep understanding because he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one who will explain all things. And so she says, this is what our people are waiting for. Verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And then the disciples come and they interrupt the conversation. And, and you get the impression that conversation was about to get good, was about to go to a good place. And you wonder what would have happened. But this really is climactic. Of all the profound things here, eternal life, living water, spirit, 
truth, all of these deep, profound things. Jesus simply saying, I who speak to you am he, doesn't strike us, but that's climactic. If you read John, John is organized around us finding out who Jesus is, and, and, and he, does these, he does this by, by revealing who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the truth, the way, and the life. When Jesus says to this woman, I who speak to you am he, you know, Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Moses, whose name means I am. Jesus now shows her the truth, that the one who sought and pursued her to give her a life uh, is the Christ who will not only explain all things to her, but she needs more than information. She needs redemption. And he has sought to not simply explain that so she can understand, but to satisfy her. And so this is a redemptive story of somebody who had been seeking the best that life could offer, but her story seems to be a broken one. And our story is that we live in a world that, that promises to satisfy us. Marketing is very effective at, 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 at targeting who we are in our dissatisfaction, but untruthfully overselling what they offer. And therefore, part of spiritual life in this world is not to numb our dissatisfaction, nor to try to do some super spiritual thing and remain dissatisfied, but to seek satisfaction where it actually can be found. And in those moments when we're dissatisfied, to recognize the caution that's needed to not satisfy ourselves uh, by distracting ourselves or doing what promises a satisfaction in a way that it doesn't. Uh, there's a, a counselor in New York named Steve Hoppy, and uh, not this past year, but the year before, uh, we had a, a dinner with the men of the church, and we invited him to come and talk to us, and he's written a book called Sipping Saltwater that has this one central story to it that, that he then uses to, to play out uh, his encouragement for us, and I thought of the book yesterday, and the book is in the office, so I, I, would, I think rereading it could have been helpful for the sermon. I didn't have the choice to, but, but he has this one central story in it that I think um, is helpful for our context. He talks about a guy named Louis Zamperini, who, who was an Olympic athlete who wound up in World War II uh, in the military. And he was with a plane on a mission that went down and crashed in the Pacific Ocean. And his story is that he survived 47 days in the ocean. And what Steve highlights in his book is that, that he's baking in the sun all day, <laughs> Um, he's in salt water and, you know, whatever that's doing to, to his, uh, his balance. Uh, he likely would have been very thirsty. And there you are needing to survive uh, exceedingly thirsty, but knowing you should not drink the water around you because the water around you will not satisfy you. In fact, it'll poison you and harm you. And that becomes the paradigm for the human condition being dissatisfied, having these longings, and, and we're surrounded by things that that we just think about, if I could just taste of that, I'll be okay, I'll, I'll get myself through the next two hours. But there's a wisdom that we learn to say, not only will that not satisfy you, but it will harm you. And we go through these cycles of saying, but I don't care, I'm, I'm gonna give it a try, I, I can't exist dissatisfied. And Jesus says, well, you don't need to exist dissatisfied. I am seeking after those uh, that I will pour living water into and there will be satisfaction and in its fullness, its future. But right now there's a well that could start to nourish us and it changes our lives. So there's that question. Are you satisfied with the life you're living?
And all of us, if we're honest, have to say, no, I, I, I want more success. I want to feel better. I want more friends. I want to thrive. And in this pandemic, maybe I just want to go to a movie. But our dissatisfactions are deeper than that. And when things are rightly ordered, we can enjoy all of these things and, and they'll play a function of, of enjoyment and satisfaction and goodness and enriching our lives. But if, if we're spiritually dead, if, if we are disconnected from what could really satisfy, then all of these things are just distracting us from our truest and deepest need. Um, I hate this pandemic and I don't like being dissatisfied. But I think God is showing us something if we have the eyes to see it, which is a reminder that the world for all of its goodness was not meant to give us life in itself. Uh, but God promises to give us life. And so there's an opportunity as we're enduring our dissatisfaction to say, you know what, I know ordering another thing off of Amazon is not gonna make the whole year better. Um, I know that if I can go and see the New York City Ballet, it would be wonderful, but it would not, it would not change uh, all that's wrong with me. The dissatisfaction gives us an opportunity to do the kind of evaluation that we don't wanna do because it's painful, but, but a confrontation with the truth where Jesus comes and says, I know you, but I will pour living water into you. And the understanding, Jesus will explain it. We have so much to learn, but let's come with our questions. Jesus is going to show us. He's going to meet us where we're at, whatever our story is. And so there's an understanding, but, but here's, here's what I want to talk about for the remainder of the time. The second thing is that we can receive what truly satisfies. And so this is a story about a woman whose life, the trajectory of her life was changed, but it's also a story about a community that Jesus works in this woman's life. And there seems to be a restoration, not simply in her, but with her and her people, but with her and her people and God. And so the interruption, as he has this climactic statement, I who speak to you, I'm he, the disciples come and they're now confused. <laughs> Why is Jesus talking to this woman? Um, they're doing their crowd control protective thing. She leaves and they have a conversation now, not about water, but about food because he's hungry, he's weary, and they want to empower his ministry. So they go to get food for him and they come back and now they're talking on that level about food. And Jesus in verse 34 says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's still a human being. He's still hungry. He still feels as hungry. He still needs to eat. But every great human being who has impact in the world has lived for something more than just passing the time, more than just entertainment, more than just food and drink, more than just fashion. So all of those things could be good and play a role in our lives, but we know that the true movers and shakers, the true admirable people live for something deeper. And here's Jesus, a human being, he needs to eat, he does need to drink. But at the end of the day, in the midst of this interaction, where something history changing that now a Jew has gone out from his own community to bring God and to bring restoration. And his disciples are talking about food. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There's something far more satisfying that, look, we could eat the bread that you just bought and tomorrow we're gonna to be hungry. But this moment is gonna change these people. And Jesus comes with a deeper purpose and that's what we see playing out that he's always interacting with people who need him but don't understand why and they're confused and he's always talking about profound things that people don't understand and yet there's always something to hold on to, something 
to say this guy is convincing, compelling. There's something we're drawn to because he's not like us. He lives for something more profound, and yet his life wasn't wonderful and easy and happy. He was dissatisfied not simply in the daily hunger, not simply from the heat of the midday, but from doing this really hard work that the Father sent him to do, but that he would accomplish. And so if you look through John's gospel, the theme of the Spirit really is central. The imagery of water, Jesus' first miracle, turning water to wine, baptism. Read through John's gospel this week if you like and think about the Spirit, think about water. But think about this conversation where Jesus says, the water that you would give me, Samaritan woman, would cause me to thirst, but the water I give you will mean that you never thirst. If you take the four Gospels, there are seven last words attributed to Jesus, seven last phrases. John records two of them. The first that John records is as Jesus is on the cross, a human being suffering in the middle, the heat of the day, crucified, condemned, alienated. John records him saying, I thirst. And his audience understands that in a very ordinary way. Let's give him a sponge with something on it just to sustain him but something deeper and more profound was going on. How is it that Jesus is the one who's going to give the living water? Well, he is going to give life by giving up his life. He will be the one who becomes so dissatisfied that his spirit is quenched in order that he would accomplish the work of the Father and so that he could send the spirit. Read John 14 to 16, where Jesus says, I am going away, but I will send the spirit of truth. Jesus here talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. Don't want to be too firm about this, but there's a sense in which Jesus in this passage is the truth. The sending of the Spirit is the water he's talking about. He will send the Spirit of truth. The truth of Christ comes. The Father sends. The Son accomplishes. The Spirit brings its reality into our life. And that accomplishing happened through Jesus' suffering and death. The one who comes and asks, what can you give me, knows that no human being could give him anything that would satisfy him. And yet, whatever we feel like we could give to him, he is always the one who gives everything to us. So the first word that John records when Jesus is on the cross is, I thirst. But the last word he records is, it's finished. Jesus says, my bread is to come to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. And when he goes to the cross, he says, it's finished. All of the dissatisfaction, all of the false promises, all of the lies, it's done because now I have shown that God is calling all people, not simply from whatever mountain you worship in, whatever idol you formed, whatever you hope in, but now the truth comes from the Jews, the Messiah. The announcement goes out. Whoever you are, he knows you. He sees you. He will explain things. But more than that, he will pour the Spirit into you, and that will cause a, a new well. Water will, will flow into your life. A spring, which is why Proverbs warns us, guard your heart. It's a wellspring of life. Jesus comes to bring living water into our lives, and he's trustworthy because the one who gives us the water gave us his own water. He, he didn't drink of it so that we could be satisfied. And that's the redemptive story. This woman doesn't know the fullness of that, but she knows this guy told me everything I did. I'm going to go tell the community. And again, why, why is she there in the middle of the day by herself? We don't know, but it, it signals this is somebody that, that maybe was an outcast in her own story. And there's a picture there. There's a story within a story because the Samaritans may have rejected her, this woman who has had five husbands, this woman who's a failure, this woman who struggles. 
and maybe they didn't want anything to do with her. And the conversation begins with her saying the Jews want nothing to do with the Samaritans because the Samaritan people, their story from the Jewish perspective was exactly like hers. You know, after, De after Solomon dies, uh, the, the kingdom splits up and you have Ahab and these other terrible kings setting up their, their ruler in Samaria. And what do they do? They make alliances with the other nations. They, they're meant to be faithful to their God. And they don't fully leave their God. They just join with others until they're left. The Assyrians come in and destroy them. And then there's this intermarriage. Read in Ezra and Nehemiah what happens, that, that then the Samaritans are these people that, that they're, they, they're descendants of Jacob, but they, they have a, a partial corrupted truth. They don't worship properly. They don't come to the temple. But they've been alienated. From the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans have had many spouses as well. They've sought refuge from the other nations, and yet every one of them has disappointed them. Every one of them has sold them out. Nobody's delivered them. And now here's a woman that the Samaritans would reject, and Jesus comes and says, but don't you see? I have known her, and I've sent her to tell you about the one who can explain everything. And so the story ends in this climactic way that the community comes and they believe her. They listen to her and in verse 42. They say to her, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. This is not our God. This is not their God. But they marvel. And, and the redemptive piece here, this woman, if she was alienated, now is famous. She's the one who was the witness to us. We believed because you told us. You are the one who explained the truth and you brought us and now we have our own salvation because we know that this indeed, we've encountered Jesus. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who has come to explain to us the true way of worship. Not that you're wrong and we're right, you're gonna now come to us. But the world has been wrong and God is now going out because he's seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. And so you read the book of Acts, the gospel is in Jerusalem and Judea and then it goes to Samaria. And then it goes to the ends of the earth. The Samaritans declared Jesus as the savior of the world, even while his own people for the upcoming chapters don't recognize the truth that this is God's Messiah. And so our stories are meant to, to be stories where we, we see that, that Jesus comes to us in our dissatisfaction and he will explain things. It takes time. We don't understand all these things. But what we're told is if we will listen, if we will follow, if you will trust him, he will show us the truth. But more than that, he will pour his spirit into us, this living water. And so here's what I want to leave you with uh, as we come to the end of this passage. Um, the application is that we are to worship in spirit and truth. And so that's verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so this gives us an opportunity to talk about our own dissatisfaction and what we need. You know, according to the Bible, everyone is religious. And it's interesting these days, even in, in, in cultural conversation, we, we know sociologically everyone fits the, the patterns of religion. What I mean by that is people need ritual. People need transcendence. They need something great. People need hope. People are looking for morality and ethics. They want to do the right thing. All of the things that biblical Christianity offers – other cultures come up with religions, uh, but even atheists, secular humanists, um, 
there's human nature to, to seek these things. We want transcendence. We want community. We want hope. We want to make sense of things. We want ethics and morals. And we realize there's no escaping the impulse to worship. But what we're finding out is we devote ourselves to things that don't satisfy. It could be our work. It could be hoping a romantic relationship. Our sexuality will, will be the thing if we get in an order that will, will fully satisfy us. We hope that, that if we could have enough financial prosperity, we could have the lifestyle of the fame and the food and the drink and the comfort and the pleasure. We have all of these things that we, we devote ourselves thinking, once I have those things, and so my time, my energy, my devotion, my hope is tied in other things. And what we're told is none of those things will ever satisfy you. You are a religious person um, and you're worshiping, but it's not in truth. And it's not in any way spiritual, even if it feels that way. We are invited. We are shown the truth. God knows. He will explain. And he is gracious. He comes to seek and, and, and find us. And he will show us himself. I who speak to you am he. That's what Jesus will show you in your story. But more than that, he will pour his spirit into your life. And that will start to satisfy you. And what that means is we need to be those who worship in spirit and truth. Uh, we worship according to the scriptures. In the name of Christ according to what he has shown us, but it's not just cognitive. It needs to be based on the truth. It can't be just be emotional, but we're engaging our very souls, our very hearts and minds, devoting ourselves to wanting to see with our affections, the beauty and the greatness of God. And when that captures our hearts, things are rightly in order. So then you could enjoy the great meal, knowing you'll be hungry again tomorrow, but you haven't hoped in it. You haven't used it to, to satisfy you, but you've enjoyed it. It's when we're worshiping anything that's not God that all of these things will fail us. And so Jesus comes to restore proper worship. It's a timely thing right now because the elders just decided this week of all of the various factors that we're looking at, we made the hard decision. We don't think we're going to try to, to resume in-person worship in September. We're going to revisit it in September. That's disappointing. Zoom has been good enough. We're connected. God is with us. We're worshiping by the Spirit. It's mediated through this technology, but we're really God's people in God's presence right now. That's true. But it's not as good. There's something about the way that God has wired us, that being with a group of people and hearing and feeling their voices as they sing, it helps us in worship. God has given us community. God has given us signs, to, things to taste and to hold. All of these things in terms of the physical world that make worship better. But the reality is worship fundamentally is spirit and truth, and, and we have that. And, and our current dissatisfactions can remind us of the simplicity that we may have lost because at the end of the day, it's hard to worship. And having 125 people, as we do on an ordinary Sunday, uh, we would normally have singing helps us in our lethargy, helps us in our weakness. But the danger is sometimes it helps us when our lives are fundamentally devoted to what will not satisfy. And we show up at church dissatisfied, and there's something about that human experience that makes us leave feeling good. And then we go back to a world where we're really devoted to something else, which is why so many churches have the bulk of their budget in their music, in, um, in, in the presentation, which is understandable. There's nothing wrong with wanting a powerful worship experience. But there's a danger of feeling like I was satisfied by this hour and a half experience, and now I'm going back into the world that's exhausting me that this simplicity of this moment is an opportunity to say, you know what, singing will help me, but it's not going to satisfy my soul. Um, having a bagel and talking with human beings will help me. I want that. That's good. 
But the question I think for us to ask at this time is do we have the spirit and do we have the truth? And, and if we have those, we can be satisfied, not deeply. This is a dissatisfying time. This is a dissatisfying world. But as you find yourself being dissatisfied, the opportunity now is to say, you know, I know that food and drink won't do it. I know that the theater won't do it. I know museums won't do it. I know a party won't do it. I know being with others won't fully do it deeply. The truth of what we know is, is God offers us what will, but because it's hard, we don't pursue it. And now we're put in a situation where things are hard and we can't pursue much else. You know, this last winter, we spent a lot of time praying for the house churches in China. And we were doing that because of increasing government persecution, arrests that were happening. We spent weeks praying for a guy named Wang Yi, uh, who we knew if he continued as he was doing, he would get arrested. And he did. And he was sentenced. And he's now in prison. That's a reality of what's happening. And because of that, a lot of these house churches, they gather and they, they can't sing because if the neighbors hear that they're there, they'll call the police. And yet... Here's a group of people that are being told the government's showing up Sunday and they decide to go to church. Here's a pastor who said, you know what? If I don't change my story, I'm going to prison. And he's now in prison. What is it that compels them? <laughs> well, they didn't come to vibrant singing. They didn't come to a great refreshments time. They didn't come to hear the stories of what everybody had succeeded in this week or the things that are, are part of good community life that we value, that we want but they had the spirit and they had the truth. And when it came down to it, they showed their discipleship by saying that that's enough. If, if we have that, let them take everything from us. Let them kill us. Let them imprison us. And, and there's an opportunity for a church that has been praying for them <laughs> to find ourselves now dissatisfied. And, and we are not threatened in the way that they have been and who knows what's coming. But right now we still have luxury. We still have Zoom. We still have freedom. But to ask ourselves, if we're dissatisfied, what will satisfy our souls? And, and what Jesus comes and he shows us is, if you look to him, you have the truth. And if you believe in him, you have the spirit. And so sure, things could be better. But for those who hope in Christ, things are very good. And don't miss that. Let your dissatisfaction remind you that this is a time of taking your hopes away from the things that are failing you and focusing on the only thing that will satisfy you. And then we will find that the order of things are restored, that we can then become those who worship in truth and in spirit. And so let me pray for us that God would, would bring that life into us. Our Father, we, we confess we are dissatisfied, and some of this dissatisfaction is not because we're spiritually weak, it's because this world is hard, we're struggling. But Lord, so much of it is because we are spiritually weak, we're sinful, we devote ourselves to things that we know can't satisfy us, but, but we're desperate. And so we drink from what poisons us rather than waiting for you to satisfy our thirst. And Lord, every week we pray, a prayer of confession. Every week we go back into the world and, and we make the same mistakes, but Lord, here we are again and we have the spirit and we have truth and we pray that you would satisfy us with your good. We pray that we would delight ourselves in you so that you would give us the very things our hearts yearn for. Lord, open our eyes to the truth. Do a spiritual work for all of us, whether it's somebody who understands nothing 
but knows that they want more of this life, show them uh, who Jesus is and how you are seeking after them. Help us who have studied theology and who have learned, and yet we, we know but we don't understand or we don't apply. Oh Lord, we want the truth. We want the spirit. Um, we want the fullness of the joy that Jesus promises to come and uniquely give. And so do that work as we worship today. Do that work in restoring us this week. Uh, do that work in our city and in our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.